One day, Jesus was approached by a hotshot attorney fresh out of law school who asked, good teacher, what must I do in order to be saved? That, incidentally, is the greatest question anybody could ever ask. Ironically, Jesus took the lawyer back to the law. He asked him, how do you read it? The young lawyer responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you do this and you will live. It seems that in the teaching of Jesus throughout his ministry, he would say to anyone who would listen that the requirements of God are both vertical and horizontal. It's vertical in the sense that you and I have to love God with all the stuffing that's inside of us. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's also horizontal in the sense that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't know that which one is easier to do than the other, for both of them seem quite problematic to me. Because of my own selfishness, it seems hard sometimes to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because of my arrogance, there are times that it seems difficult to love neighbor as self, both of which seem to be quite problematic in my everyday walk with the Lord. Yet regardless, Jesus says there is a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the requirements that God has upon your life. Most people, I think, believe that somehow it's easier to love God than to love neighbor. When Jesus makes his turn and comes down the home stretch of the infamous Sermon on the Mount, it seems to me that Jesus is addressing the crowd on how we ought to love our neighbor. And so with that in mind, I invite you to once again turn to the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. It's to that passage that we give our attention this morning. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand in the public reverence, reverence of God's holy public word. Matthew chapter 7, we'll read verse 1 through verse 12. Hear the word of Christ. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, while all the while there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. In our passage, Jesus gives us two principles to live by. The first principle is found in verse 1. The second principle is given in verse 12. The first principle tells us what we ought not to do. The second principle tells us what we ought to do. Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 by simply saying, Do not judge. 
Then he wraps up the passage in verse 12 by saying, So in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For many of us, that second principle found in verse 12 is the golden rule. I realize that for some of us, we always believe that the golden rule was whoever has the gold makes the rules, but that's not exactly the way Jesus defined it. Jesus said, so in everything you do to others as you would have them do unto you. Perhaps the most well-known statement and often quoted phrase of Jesus spoken by non-believers is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus said, do not judge. In the first century, in the 21st century, it wasn't uncommon for pagans to tell anyone, do not judge me. What was stated in those days is still stated today. And I've oftentimes wondered, what did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge? Let me begin by telling you what I think he did not mean. I don't think that statement, do not judge, is a ban on accountability. How many of you have ever tried to lovingly uh, correct someone who's going astray only for that person to turn around, spin on you, and say, do not judge me? Who do you think you are to judge me? For after all, Jesus said, do not judge lest ye be judged. You have very many of those experiences, and for many of us, it causes us to take a step back and say, well, I just won't ever try that again. Most people, when they hear the words of Jesus, and if they're not believers, they take that as some type of ban on accountability. For when that person makes that statement to you, what he or she is really screaming is, I don't want to have any standard by which I must live by. So do not judge me. Yeah, I want to tell you this morning that I don't think Jesus is banning accountability. I think accountability is part and parcel of being in the faith family of God. In the Old Testament, the proverb writer said, as uh, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There is friction of accountability, and that friction is a good thing. It is good for us to lovingly hold one another accountable. The Apostle Paul will say in Galatians chapter 6, that if anyone is in sin, you who are spiritual ought to restore him gently. Now the operative word there is gently, but restoration needs to take place. So in the faith family of God, there is a sense of accountability and Jesus is not banning accountability when he comes to Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. You and I need to hold each other accountable to the high standard of the Lord. So I also don't think that Jesus when he makes the statement, do not judge, I don't think he is forbidding the critique of character. Just a few verses later, Jesus is going to identify some people as dogs and hogs. I don't think that's a reference to the athletic teams of Georgia and Arkansas, respectively. I think that Jesus is identifying some character flaws in individuals, and he says that they are as unclean as wild dogs and as unclean as wild hogs. So Jesus is not going to tell us not to do something in one breath and then turn right around just a couple of verses later in the next breath and actually do what he tells us not to do in just a previous moment. Jesus is not that schizophrenic. Jesus is not that inconsistent. So he's not going to tell us, do not judge, and that judging means you cannot call into question anyone's character. For do not judge does not mean that Jesus is forbidding us to critique the character of someone else. He's also not meaning that we are prohibited from analyzing a person's actions. Once again, you don't have to go very far. 
uh, in Matthew chapter 7, and, and Jesus will uh, speak of the false prophets, and he will call them ferocious wolves. In fact, he will say later in chapter 7 that a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, a good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit, so by their fruit you will recognize them. It seems to me that once again, Jesus cannot be telling us not to do something that he's going to turn around and do just a few verses later. It seems that Jesus says it's quite possible and appropriate for us to analyze actions. Because, after all, it's by a person's life, it's by their fruit that we can recognize them. Once again, it's the Apostle Paul who will later say in Romans chapter 16, watch out for the divisive person. Watch out for the individual that puts obstacles in your path. Keep away from them. Now, Paul is not contradicting the words of Jesus when he says to the church there in Rome, keep away from divisive people. Keep away from people that try to trip you up and put obstacles in your path. For you and I both know that we need to analyze people's action because there are some people that we simply need to stay away from. There are some people that do not have our best interest at heart. There are some people that come along our path not to help us, but to harm us, and we would do well to keep away from them. So when Jesus says, do not judge, I don't think he is banning accountability. I don't think that he is somehow uh, forbidding the, the evaluation of character and critiquing a person's character. And I don't think that he is prohibiting the analysis of a person's actions. So what in the world does he mean when he says, do not judge? Well, the word judge literally means to prefer, to select, to come to a conclusion or to make a decision. Now, once again, Jesus is not saying you ought never make a decision. He's not saying you should never make a selection. If that's true, we'd stand at the grocery aisle and just stand there forever, not being able to make a decision. He's not saying that we can't prefer something. He's not saying we can't have opinions. He's not saying that we can't select something. He's not saying we should not reach a conclusion or make a decision. So what is he saying? I think Jesus is addressing more of our attitude, even more than our action. I think that he's addressing even to a greater degree, our intent even more than our outcome. I think the bottom line, I think Jesus, when he says, do not judge, I think what Jesus means is that we are forbidden as God's people to have a self-righteous, superior, egotistical, unmerciful, condemning disposition. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is telling anyone who will listen that the requirements of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do we love our neighbor? How do we interact one with the other? Well, first and, first and foremost, you do not have a self-righteous, superior, egotistical, unmerciful, condemning disposition towards other people. Do not be self-righteous. Do not be high and mighty, Jesus says. Do not perch yourself at a superior position as if you can look down on an individual, maybe because of their age or their status or their level of influence. Oh no, the, the ground at the Calvary is, is all level and we come to God on bended knee. You remember the posture and position that Jesus has consistently said in the Sermon on the Mount, that the way you get into the kingdom, the way you stay in the kingdom is on bended knee with head downcast, eyes closed, arms outstretched and palm open heavenward. We are spiritual beggars before the Lord. We are not superior to anyone 
We are low men and women on the totem pole. So Jesus says, do not come at a person with a self-righteous, superior, egotistical, unmerciful, condemning disposition. For you realize that Jesus has been merciful to you and we've said time and time again that God's mercy towards us motivates mercy from us. That as Jesus spoke in that infamous story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray and the Pharisee prayed about himself or to himself, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector for I I pray and I tithe and I, I fast twice a week. Jesus said that it was the tax collector who stood at a distance with his head downcast. He beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus said that it was that man, not the Pharisee, who went home justified before the Lord. Why did the Pharisee not go home justified? I would say unto you and submit unto you that the reason he did not go home justified was because he had a self-righteous, superior, egotistical, unmerciful, condemning disposition towards others. So Jesus says, Do not be that way. Do not do that. If you're anything like me, uh, you may have people in your life and, and you think that they think that the reason they're in your life is to set you straight. That the reason they're in your life is to teach you a lesson, is to tell you a thing or two, is to put you in your place. I don't think I'm the only one in the house that has individuals like that. People that will willingly come and tell me uh, what I need to do or ought to do. And they'll, they'll act as if they need to teach me a lesson or, 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 uh, or put me in my place. I remember a story of a pastor who uh, was um, having a difficult time in his church. And, and there was one deacon in particular, and he actually thought to himself, that's the reason God has given me this deacon, is to, because the deacon thinks that his job is to keep me in my place and to teach me a lesson or, or tell me a thing or two or what I need to learn. And it's a very difficult thing because it is not a question of accountability. It's not a, a character issue or a character flaw. It, it's not uh, trying to analyze actions. It's just somebody giving you their uh, unsolicited opinion about what you need to do. I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, before, before you speak or before you send that email, before you Uh, have that talk you need to check your tone before you interact whether it's to your spouse or your child or or maybe it's uh, to a co-worker or a church member or a classmate or a teammate before you speak to them before you uh, launch off into that monologue tirade before you just kind of tell them off and put them in their place you better check and see hey wait a minute is what I'm about to say is it going to be perceived could it be perceived that I'm coming from a a self-righteous superior, egotistical, unmerciful, uh, 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 and, and, and a condemning disposition. And if I'm coming from that angle, then Jesus is probably telling me, don't do it. I think he's really calling all of us to check how we interact with each other. Before we write that note, before we send that letter, whether it's anonymous or whether we put our signature to it, before we fire off that email, before we get into that verbal confrontation, before we say this, before we just give them our opinion, keep in mind, it's not anything about the other person's in sin. You're not trying to hold them accountable. It's not that they have a character flaw. You're not really trying to call anything out on the carpet. It's not that 
they've done something inappropriate by their action. No, no, they've just done something that Jesus personally don't appreciate or like, and we just fire off at them. Jesus says, wait, wait, do not judge. For the same measure that you use against them will be measured against you. So don't approach people with that self-righteous, superior, egotistical, unmerciful, condemning disposition. Then Jesus gives a great illustration. Jesus says, why is it that you are so concerned with the speck of sawdust, could be translated the splinter, that's in your brother's eye, and all the while, you can't see the two-by-four that's sticking out of your own eye socket. Jesus gives a great illustration, and he really punches it home as far as what this idea is of, of being judgmental. Jesus says, listen, you are trying to do some splinter surgery on people, and you're really being quite delusional because you're trying to do splinter surgery, and you've got a plank sticking out of your eye socket. Now, let me tell you, if you had a piece of sawdust, if you had a splinter in your eye, that would be painful, right? I mean, you'd want to get that out. But if you had a stinking two-by-four hanging out of your eye, I mean, that don't you think you could notice that? It'd be obvious to everybody but you. And Jesus says, why is it that you want to come along and help? You want to come along and set somebody straight. You want to come along and minister in the name of Jesus. You want to come along and fix somebody and fix their splinter, and you got a two-by-four hanging out of your eyeball. Jesus says, first... Allow God to take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to more effectively and clearly minister and do some splinter surgery in the life of your brother and sister in Christ. It's not that Jesus says you take care of yourself to the neglect of somebody else. Jesus is not saying that we ought to neglect others. No, he's saying that we ought to do some splinter surgery. But we must first make sure that we don't have any planks hanging out of our eye, plank of disobedience, plank of defilement before the Lord. Once again, we, a great example of this is the life of David. Many of you know the story of David that after his sinful sexual escapade with Bathsheba, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And David retreated into his study and he wrote Psalm 51. And that psalm begins and says, Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. Create within me a pure heart. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, take care of the plank that's in my eye socket. And then if you read Psalm 51, 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will come back to you. In other words, then I'll be able to do some splinter surgery on somebody else. Oh God, if you fix me, then by the power of your Holy Spirit, then I have the capacity, I have the right, I have the vision to be able to go and try to come alongside a brother or sister and help them in need. Oh, Jesus says, why in the world do you look at the speck in someone else's eye to the neglect of the plank that's in your own eye? Jesus would tell us that this splinter surgery is tedious. It's time-consuming. It's hard work. Some people are not up for it. Some people don't want you to do splinter surgery on them. Jesus identifies them as dogs and hogs. 
That's the very next verse. Jesus says no one takes what is sacred and throws it to the dogs. And no one uh, throws a string of pearls to pigs. You think to yourself, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? It's just kind of just a flow of thought. You know, just whatever comes to your mind, you're saying, what is the connection between dogs and hogs and splinters and logs? I mean, what's the connection here? What gives? And Jesus says, listen, there are some people that you will, that you'll try to love. You'll try to love your neighbor as yourself. You'll, you'll try to minister to. You'll try to restore them gently. No, I have nothing to do with you. They don't want your help. Jesus says it would be as foolish as, this, as if someone took the, what was sacred and threw it to the dogs. Now before, um, you know, dog lovers, you get really upset at Jesus and fire off a mean email to the heavenly account. Um, but before you get really upset with Jesus, um, know that in the first century, that dogs were not cute domesticated animals. They were four-legged woolly creatures that were unclean and on the street, and they were scavengers. Whenever a person took a, a lamb or an oxen to be sacrificed, there was a portion of that sacrificed animal that went home with the family. There was a portion that was given to the priest, and then the best portion was given to the Lord. That's what Jesus calls as sacred. Jesus says no one in his right mind would take what's reserved for God, the sacred sacrifice. No one would take that and throw that to unclean, wild, woolly dogs. In the same way, no woman would take her status symbol, her fashion statement, her string of pearls. No woman would take her pearls and throw them to the pigs. That would be a waste. Because those pigs were regarded as unclean, unfit animals for consumption in the Jewish diet. So no woman would take that status symbol and throw it to the pigs because the dogs and the hogs, they may take that which is sacred, try to trample on it, then turn around and tear you to pieces. Has there ever been anybody in the house that's had that experience? You've tried to take something that was so sacred, a teaching of God's word, and you've tried to gently apply it. You've tried to lovingly uh, illustrate it. You've tried to bring it along someone, and they take what you give them, they stomp on it, they trample on it, then they turn around, and verbally, they devour you. Has that happened to anybody in the house? We know what that's like, and Jesus says, you got to be careful. you got to be careful, because some people just don't want splinter surgery. So then you say, Lord Jesus, how do you know? How do you know? How do you discern? How do you know how to love people? At what depth do you show your love? What do you, uh, what ought you say? What ought you not to say? How do you differentiate? What do you do? And Jesus gives the next passage that says you got to pray. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. He who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus says the way you love your neighbor, the way you know how to love your neighbor is through prayer. You're asking God. You're seeking his will. You're knocking on the door of opportunity. And you're asking and you're seeking and you're knocking. And when Jesus makes these three uh, statements, he gives them as present participles. And in the Greek language, a verb tense not only tells us when the action takes place, but how it takes place. So the present tense is not only taking place in the here and now, but it's a continuous action. 
So it's not just that you ask once, you keep on asking. It's not that you just seek once, you keep on seeking. It's not that you just knock once, you keep on knocking. So in other words, some of us are just one prayer away from a breakthrough. We're asking the Lord, Lord, how do I show love to my spouse? How do I show love to my children? How do I show love to that cranky coworker? How do I show love to that irate church member? How do I show love to that uh, bozo on the ball field? How do I show love to my neighbor? How do I do this? And Jesus says, you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. Don't give up on that person. And don't give up on prayer. And don't give up on God's power to change the situation. So you keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. And then Jesus comes to the end of the passage. And Jesus gives the Mount Everest of ethics. He gives the golden rule. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do unto you. For the longest time, I thought the golden rule simply said this. You do to others before they do it to you. But that's not what Jesus says. You do to others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, you treat other people the way you want to be treated. Now, Jesus is not giving us a give in order to get ethic. He's not saying, you scratch their back, they will scratch yours. I mean, because if we're only nice to people so that they will be nice to us, we realize that there are a lot of people that will not reciprocate the level of kindness that we issue to them. And if we were just nice to those who are nice to us, we would have stopped being nice a long time ago, right? So Jesus says, listen, this is the Mount Everest of ethics. This is, this is how you love your neighbor as yourself. You do to others as you would have them do unto you. So do you want to be forgiven by others when you hurt them? Well, then you forgive others who hurt you. Do you want a genuine friend? Then you better be a genuine friend. Do you want to treat others with gentleness? Or do you want to be treated with gentleness? Then you treat others with gentleness. Do you want to be given the time of day? Then you give the time of day to others. Do you want others to really love you? Then you have to genuinely love others. Jesus says you know how to do this. He gives the illustration before the principle. He says, what father in the crowd, if his son asks for a piece of bread, is going to give him a stone? Or if his son wants a piece of fish, it's going to give him a snake? I mean, you know how to show love. You know how to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know how to do this, and you who are evil know how to do this. You know, Jesus never mixes words. I mean, don't be offended at the Savior. He just calls it the way it is. He says everybody in the crowd, everybody listening to the Scripture, everybody is evil. Yes, we are. We are evil. In fact, when a person is evil towards you, just realize that person is acting out of his or her nature. I'm not saying they can't help it. I'm just saying they choose not to help it, all right? So, so when a person is evil towards you, just chalk it up and say, you know what? That person is just acting out of their nature. Jesus says you are evil, yet you know how to give good gifts. Jesus describes two scenarios. The one is a scenario of deception. The other is a scenario of defilement. No father in his right mind would intentionally deceive his son, 
I mean, the boy comes up and says, Daddy, Daddy, can I have a piece of bread? Sure, son. Why don't you chomp on this rock? I mean, no dad would do that. It'd mess up the orthodontics that have been done. I mean, it'd mess up his teeth. I need to have a lot of problems. No dad would do that. And then if the boy said, hey, dad, can we go to Captain D's? Hey, dad, I want a piece of fish. And no dad in his right mind would give him fried snake. Because if a person ate snake, then they were defiled according to the dietary laws of Israel. So no, no father would intentionally deceive his son and no father would intentionally defile his son. And Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to do something re- remotely good, then how much more your heavenly father? Because your heavenly father, he ain't evil. Your heavenly daddy is good. And if your father in heaven is good, then you know he has the desire to give you good gifts. That that analogy is not an analogy of comparison. It's an analogy of contrast. Jesus is not comparing the heavenly father to earthly dads. He is contrasting the heavenly father to earthly dads. Earthly dads are evil. Heavenly father is good. If earthly dads know how to do some good things, heavenly father knows how to do all great things. And so this is your heavenly father. So in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. After all, who's in charge? Heavenly daddy. Heavenly daddy's in charge. So you can do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Here's the bottom line of the 12 verses. I think what Jesus is telling us as we interact one with the other, he's saying all of our relationships ought to be marked and measured by abounding grace because we have received amazing grace from God. That's the bottom line. All of our relationships ought to be marked and measured by abounding grace Because we have received amazing grace from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is amazing grace. But my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That is amazing grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus, even though we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That is amazing grace. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is amazing grace. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is amazing grace. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is amazing grace. And nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, my friends, that is amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Oh, my friends, Jesus says you must love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean by that? He is meaning that all of our relationships are to be marked and measured by abounding grace. Why? Because we have received amazing grace from God our Father. Yeah. 
So the question was posed to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus always taught a vertical and horizontal requirement of God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. As you love neighbor as self, do not judge. Do not maintain a self-righteous, superior, egotistical, unmerciful, condemning disposition. And in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This morning, as we've been talking, God just might have brought some scenarios to your mind. Some people that have said something to you or some people that you've said something to. And maybe this morning, by the Spirit of God, you've been prompted, you have thought about those you've harmed and those who've harmed you. It's not that you've tried to hold them accountable, you just tried to tell them a thing or two. It's not that you're trying to evaluate a character flaw, no, you're just trying to put them in their place. You as well as I, there are times when we're judgmental towards others. On this day, as God has been gracious to you, you be gracious to others. In all of your relationships, may they be measured and marked by abounding grace because of God's amazing grace towards you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, we are confronted by your word. Sometimes uh, it nudges us and sometimes it punches us. And Lord, on this day, um, we're amazed by your grace. There's one listening to my voice who's never accepted you as Savior. And Lord, I pray that today will be the day of his or her salvation. Help that person to come forward in this very moment when the first note is struck and the first song is sung. Oh, Father, I pray that for those who are faithful followers of you, um, people who've been following Christ for decades, Lord, maybe today you have reminded them of some things, some attitudes, some dispositions in their life. Father, help them to know that this altar is open. Oh, Father, as you are drawing families to this faith family, we pray that even in this very hour, that people will come and be part of your church here at First Pelham. May you be honored and glorified, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.